I'm uh, Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor here at the LSE. And my only job this evening is uh, to make a couple announcements and then to introduce uh, our speaker. So I think the first annou announcement is, is that if you want to tweet, the hashtag is hashtag LSE Econ. I suspect it's one E. Uh, maybe that's a typo. Maybe that's intentional. The other thing is about the timing. So Gabriel is going to talk for roughly 30, 40 minutes. And then after that, there's going to be Q&A. And we'll probably end around 7.45. Uh, and then make sure that your mobile is on silence. Otherwise, he may frown upon you, and that's never been a good thing. And so now let me uh, introduce uh, our guest. So to do that, I first want to tell you a little bit about international economics. So for years, there was this, you know, this big outstanding puzzle is that capital seemed to flow right, from the poor countries to the rich countries. And it seemed that you know, countries like the US and uh, Europe is that they were having these very low net debt positions. Yeah, sorry, they had these debt positions relative to the, uh, the outside world. And you know, the numbers just didn't add up. And uh, two years ago, we were trying to uh, hire some new young people. And in the academic world, it all happens at the same time. So all schools are all hi trying to hire young people at the same time, and there's sort of you know, rumors and buzz. There's even a website, Econ, uh, Econ Job Market Rumors. And so two years ago, there was this buzz going around. There was this, you know, this brilliant young kid from Paris who had sort of you know, solved this big puzzle that all these smart guys had been struggling with. And that was Gabriel. And what he had realized is that he had to be a lot more careful about the data and in particular, you shouldn't forget all the stuff that Americans and Europeans owned in tax havens. And so, you know, that sort of completely changed our view about, you know, what we actually had to explain. So, we thought that, you know, we, of course we invited him, and we thought we were not, never going to have a chance. He was going to go to, you know, top school like Harvard or MIT. But guess what? He actually liked us, and so I think we're very lucky that he came to us, and this evening he's going to give you guys, hopefully, a nice evening. So please join me in welcoming uh, Gabriel. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for, for having me and thanks for being here. So I'd like to talk about inequality and taxation in a globalized world, uh, starting from the fact that income and wealth inequality have increased a lot in recent decades. Just to fix ideas, in the UK, the top 1% income share used to be about 6% in the 1970s, and now it's about 14% today. So it rose to about 15, 16% prior to the financial crisis, and it dropped a little bit, and it seems to be rising again uh, over the last few years. This is more you know, broadly a phenomenon that you observe in all Anglo-Saxon countries. So in the US, the top 1% income share is even higher than this. It's more of about 20, 22% of total income that accrues to the top 1% of the income distribution. That's a general phenomenon. You have the same phenomenon for not income, but wealth. Wealth is the value of all the things that people own, you know, the financial assets, equities, bonds, mutual fund shares, uh, minus their debts and plus their real estate. That's wealth. We have good data for the U.S. that show, and, and I'll show the graph just in the next, next slide, that 
the very top wealth shares are, are, are booming and wealth is getting more and more concentrated in the US. There's evidence that this is also true at the global level. Uh, by the way, first of all, I should you know, apologize because for the UK, we don't actually know a lot about, about the wealth distribution. Okay, so we don't you know, really know what's happening in the UK. We have a clear sense of what's happening in the US. Yesterday, there was a report by Oxfam that said, you know, basically, if the current trend is sustained, the top 1% wealth share uh, the worldwide, you know, the top 1% global wealth holders will own just 50%, half of world wealth uh, next year or in the next few years. Of course, you know, that's very uncertain. We don't even know what's, what's going on in the UK, so how can we exactly know what's going on at the global level? But I think that you know, that's a plausible order of magnitude. You know, the top 1% at the global level owns maybe 45, you know, 50% of total global wealth. There's also clear indication that wealth concentration globally is uh, rising fast, especially... Uh, since the uh, financial crisis. So these facts, these facts have you know, triggered calls for more redistributive tax policies. One way to address ever-rising top income and wealth shares is maybe, first of all, to have higher top marginal tax rates on income. So in this country, the Labour Party, for instance, uh, says that it advocates a top marginal tax rate of 50% for income above 150,000 pounds against 45% today. So there are some calls for, you know, moving from 45 to 50 or maybe 60 or maybe 70% top tax rates for very high incomes. Then there's the famous proposal by Thomas Piketty of having a global wealth tax, of having taxation not of the flow of income that people earn, but of the stock of wealth every year, the one, two, three, or maybe 5% wealth tax for fortunes of dozens of millions of dollars. The question I'd like to address tonight is, can we do this? You know, is, that, is that feasible? Uh, and under which conditions can we indeed increase top income tax rates and think about wealth taxation in a globalized world. So before I move to this, just the facts. That's, that's the key fact for the US. That's a graph that shows the tiny evolution of the share of total US wealth that belongs to the top 0.1% of the population in the US. To fix ideas, to be part of the top 0.1% today in the US, what you need is a total net wealth of more than $20 million. So top 0.1%, that's 160,000 families with net wealth above $20 million. And this group of the population used to own about 15, 20%, up to 25% of total US wealth in 1929. So wealth concentration was high in the, in the early 20th century. Then there was a dramatic reduction in wealth concentration during the Great Depression, during World War II, and then a long period of remarkable stability in the top 0.1% wealth share in the 1950s, 60s. In the 1970s, this was a very bad time for, for very rich people because, in particular, 
uh, equity market performed very poorly, so the top 0.1% worth share fell at, at its historical low of about 7% in the late 1970s. And since the late 1970s, you've had this gradual and spectacular recovery all the way back or almost all the way back to the high levels of wealth concentration observed in the early 20th century. The latest data point for 2012 is a top 0.1% worth share of 22%. Now, the flip side of this is the decline in, in middle-class wealth. So that's the share of wealth and the composition of the wealth of the bottom 90% of the population in the U.S. Just, you have this widespread view that one key structural change that has happened over the course of the 20th century is the rise of middle-class wealth. That is, one century ago, you did not really have a wealthy middle class. And then, yes, it's true, there has been a lot of accumulation of wealth for the middle class, in particular because of the rise of pension wealth and the rise of relatively equally distributed household, uh, housing wealth. And so, indeed, the share of wealth that belongs to the bottom 90% of the U.S. increased from a low of 15% in the early 1930s to a high of 35 37% in the early 1980s. But what has happened since then, since the, since the early 1980s, is a gradual decline in the share of wealth owned by the bottom 90%. So yes, the middle class owns, and that's one key difference with the past, a lot of pension wealth and you know, some, some houses, mm -hmm. But basically, it owns nothing else, and it also has a lot of debts, especially in the U.S., mortgage debt, student loans, <coughs> uh, consumer credits, uh, uh, auto loans, credit card debt, uh, and so on. So when you see this, okay, you have these calls for, let's try to boost the income, for instance, of the middle class, so as to enable the middle class to save more and to accumulate more wealth. One way to boost the income of the middle class, maybe you know you have a little bit more progressive taxation, higher tax rates for the wealthy. If you have this, you know you want to keep the overall tax rate constant, and you can actually decrease the tax rate for the middle class. You can you can cut property taxes. You can have you know tax credits. You can have lower tax rates at the bottom of the distribution. Now. Globalization makes, you know, raises potential difficulties if that's indeed what you want to do. So what are the potential challenges? One challenge is that there's tax competition between countries. Tax competition between countries, for instance, low tax rates for, you know, footballers, many countries, including the UK, have this for researchers, for multinational companies, you know, trying to attract a tax base in your, in your own country, you know, by providing you know, some parts of the population with particularly low tax rates. One other challenge is tax avoidance by multinational companies. Tax avoidance by multinational companies, you, sh you should think of this as exploiting the loopholes of the corporate tax as it exists today. That's usually, not always, but usually done within, you know, the, the, the letter of the law, although not the spirit of the law. And although sometimes multinational companies do engage you know, in, in completely illicit tax you know, evasion like, like Enron, but most multinational companies at least try to respect the, the letter of the law, but the letter of the law allows for uh, many ways to actually artificially shift 
your profits to low or zero tax countries like Bermuda. And that's being widely used by U.S. multinational companies, but not, do, not only U.S. multinational companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, multinational companies from, from all over the world. Then there's the third problem, which is tax evasion by wealthy individuals. How does that work? You know, traditionally, this meant having undeclared bank accounts in, in, in offshore tax havens like Switzerland, like the Cayman Islands, and so on. More broadly, this means trying to disconnect yourself from your wealth. Trying to, you know, you're very wealthy and you're going to claim that, you know, all this wealth that exists in the world does not belong to you, despite the fact that in, in reality you are the actual beneficial owner of this wealth. So, how big are these challenges and how can they be overcome? Let me start with multinational corporations, tax avoidance, and tax competition. What you need to realize is that the corporate tax as it works today is broken. And so this creates ample opportunities for multinational companies to dodge taxes. It also makes very difficult to solve the, the problems of the corporate tax if we remain in the current framework. We need to, to rethink the way that we tax multinational corporations. Why is it so? It's because the way we tax multinational corporations, we invented this uh, in the 1920s. It's based on three principles. It's based, first of all, on the principle of source-based taxation. Now imagine you live in the UK, but you own a company in Chile that produces coffee in Chile. Source-based taxation says any profits made in the coffee-producing activity will be taxed in Chile. No, it will not be taxed in the UK where the shareholders live. It will be taxed in the UK where the profits are made. That's source-based taxation. Second principle is what I call arm's-length pricing. Imagine that this Chilean company is actually part of a multinational group. There's a, you know, a headquarter in the UK that imports coffee from the Chilean subsidiary and that distributes coffee uh, to, the, to the UK market. So some profits actually are made in the UK, some profits are made in Chile. You know, some profits arise from coffee production, some profits arise from actual distribution to the final customers. How do you determine which fraction of the profits are made in the UK and which fraction is made in Chile? The rule is that you are going to do as if the two subsidiaries are completely independent and they trade coffee, they import and export coffee among themselves as if they were unrelated at the market price for coffee. So at the end of the day, this makes some accounting profits appear in Chile, some accounting profits appear in the UK. That's what's taxable in the UK, and the accounting profits in Chile are taxable in Chile. And the last rule is that we are not going to solve the way to tax multinational companies with a multilateral global agreement like we do for trade, for, you know, the general agreement on tariff and trade. Instead, we are going to have thousands of bilateral tax treaties between the UK and Chile, the UK and France, the UK and the US, that broadly respect these two principles of source-based taxation and arms-length pricing that differ in many ways. Now, all of this did not matter a lot until recently for the very simple reason that you know, there was not a lot of profits made abroad. So that's for the US, that's the share of the profits made abroad in total US corporate profits. So up to the 1970s, less than 10% of all the profits of US firms were made abroad. 
Then this remained pretty low until 1990s, and then you have this boom in the early 2000s, and that's continuing today. That's globalization on a very large scale. You know, now 30, 35% of all the profits made by US firms are made not in the US, are made abroad. And so now, these choices made in the 1920s, where there was very little, actually, you know, globalization was, was, was much less than today. Now these, these choices are coming back to haunt the, the tax authorities. Why? Because each of the three principles that, that were agreed upon in the 1920s raised big issues. Bilateral agreement, instead of a global multinational agreement, this gives many opportunities to multinational firms to strategically choose the location of their subsidiaries to exploit inconsistencies between the tax treaties. That's what Google, you know, Google has it says, you know, its headquarters in the US, a subsidiary in Bermuda, a subsidiary in Ireland, a share company in the Netherlands. That's the so-called double Irish Dutch sandwich that's exploiting all the inconsistencies between the tax treaties, US, Ireland, Ireland, Netherlands, Ireland, Bermuda, and the end result of all this is that a very large fraction of Google's profits appear as being made in Bermuda or booked in Bermuda where the corporate tax rate is 0%. So that's the problem with bilateral agreements. The problem with arms length pricing is, is, is that you know, there are billions of intra-group transactions every year. The tax authorities cannot check that all of them are correctly priced at the correct market price. And so if, if it's coffee that's being traded between subsidiaries, then it's quite easy to check. But if it's logos, algorithm, intellectual property, intellectual capital in general, uh, what's the relevant market price for these intra-group transactions that's simply not defined? The reference prices in many cases, and increasingly so because of the rise of intangible capital, do not exist. So this notion that we can allocate profits across countries by having this arm's length pricing system, no, that was maybe fine for the 1920s, that's not fine for 2015. And the last problem is source-based taxation. It's fine, but then it gives incentive uh, for firms to, uh, uh, to move not only accounting profits, but real activity, headquarters, workers, factories, where taxes are low, okay? The bottom line is that, again, the way we tax corporations, uh, multinational corporations, is not adapted anymore to today's globalized world. So can we have a sense of what's the cost of all this for uh, governments? That's hard to quantify, you know, there are many technical issues, my approach is I, I, I start from national accounts data, you know, on total income, GDP, uh, uh, income earned from abroad, and so on, trade, uh, and I focus on the case of the United States. The question is what's happening to the profits of U.S.-owned companies. So again, think Amazon, Google, and so on. And that's the latest data. So the latest data show that profit shifting, artificial profit shifting to low tax jurisdictions, to tax havens, is rising fast. Remember, I showed earlier a graph that showed that roughly one third of all the profits of US firms are made abroad. Now this graph decomposes 
where these profits are made. Okay, they are made abroad, but in which country? So 55% of all the foreign profits of US firms today are made in six low-tax countries, Ireland, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Bermuda, and Singapore. And the point is that this is growing every year. Okay, and this is growing pretty fast. So one third of all the, the profits of US firms are made abroad. 55% of these foreign profits are made in low-tax countries. The consequence, when you combine these two figures, the consequence of this is that about 20% of all US corporate profits, either made by multinational firms or not, including the profits made by the numerous firms that only have domestic activity, 20% of all these profits are booked in tax havens uh, today. Again, no, that was only 2% in 1984. So that's a tenfold increase. It increased a lot during the, the Great Recession, the financial crisis, because foreign profits remained pretty strong, whereas domestic profits collapsed. And since then, it has stabilized at a high level. What's the cost of this? Try to think about a simple computation which is, in the numerator, you have all the taxes paid by U.S. multinational firms, either to the U.S. governments, that's the green curve, or to the U.S., oh, sorry, that's the, that's the red curve, or to the U.S. and to foreign governments, that's the green curve. That's the numerator, and you divide this by all U.S. corporate profits. So if you do this computation, this gives you the effective tax rate, which is paid in reality by U.S. firms. The nominal tax rate in the U.S. has been very stable since the late 1980s. It's 35%, okay? But in practice, yes, in the early 1990s, the effective tax rate was, you know, 30%, not very far from 35%, but since then, the effective tax rate paid by U.S. multinational firms, by, by U.S. firms, sorry, all U.S. firms, has declined a lot, and today is about 20% and it was about 45, almost 50% in the 1950s. Why does that matter? You know, this matters because the corporate tax is one of the key ways to tax capital. Okay? The corporate tax in the US, in, Euro in Europe as well, accounts for about one-third of all taxes and capital. Taxes and capital, why do taxes and capital matter? You know, if you've read Thomas Piketty's book, you know about RNG, R is bigger than G. The bigger the gap between RNG, the bigger the concentration of wealth in the long run. The R, the rate of return that matters for this computation, for this equation, R bigger than G, is the rate of return on wealth after net of capital taxes. Okay? So if capital taxes, and in particular corporate taxes, fall, R increases, the gap between R and G increases, and everything else equal, you're going to have more concentration of wealth and more concentration of income in the long run. Now, there's no shortage of plans. So what do we do? There's no shortage of plans to, to fix the corporate tax. So you have some people arguing, well, you know, obviously this is broken, let's uh, abolish it. Repeal of the corporate tax. Now, big problem is that if you do this, this would severely undermine the individual income tax. You know, the key reason why we have a corporate tax is because it's very hard to have a personal income tax and no corporate tax. If you do this, everybody incorporates, 
and retains earnings within companies tax-free, and so the personal tax no, does not work, the personal income tax. So if you want to tax income, you need to tax income at both the individual level and the corporate level. And more broadly, as I just explained, if you repeal the corporate tax, you reduce capital taxation that can have dramatic effects on inequalities in the long run. So I don't think that's a great idea. Now you have you know, a better approach, which is, yes, we know about these problems with treaties, the double Irish Dutch sandwich, so let's try to do something. So that's the OECD's approach. Maybe some of you have been following this. There's an ambitious plan to uh, curb base erosion and profit shifting, you know, ensure that there are less inconsistencies in uh, bilateral tax uh, treaties. Okay? Is it going to work? Is it going to be effective? I don't know. I'm not very convinced for the very simple reason that the OECD and most OECD countries want to keep this fundamental principle of arm's length pricing. Let's trade, you know, let's do as if the subsidiaries of a given group were completely unrelated and were trading among themselves. I don't think that's the great note that's, that's going to work looking forward. I think there's a simple solution to the artificial shifting of, co of corporate profits to low-tax jurisdictions, which is to tax the worldwide consolidated profits of firms. So that's very easy. You know, we know the amount of profits made by Google or Apple or Amazon at the global level. That cannot be manipulated. Okay, that's, that's no. Then you need to figure out how to allocate these global consolidated profits to each country. Now, one simple way to allocate global profits to each country is to do this proportionally to sales. Let's assume that Amazon makes 10% of its sales in the UK. And the UK would say, we are going to assume that 10% of your global profits are in the UK. We are going to tax you on 10% of your global profits. And that's the end of the game. You, know, you, can't, you, you, you can send your profits to Bermuda. You cannot send your customers to Bermuda. Your customers, they are in the UK, in the US, in developing countries, and not in unpopulated tax havens. So in technical terms, that's called formula apportionment based on sales, which simply means take the global profits, allocate them to each country proportionally to where sales are made. And that would remove any tax avoidance opportunity of the form, you know, profit shifting. You know, this graph here, you know, that, that the share of tax havens in foreign profits will go to zero. Zero, there would be no point in having subsidiaries in Bermuda or elsewhere. A slightly more, you know, complicated ways to have a more complicated formula that does not simply use sales but also employment and capital, that's not very important. And I think the main, the simplest way to address the problem of, you know, multinational corporate tax dodging is to do exactly what I said, tax global, consolidated worldwide profits and a portion based on sales. So there's a solution to this big problem that costs a lot of money. And the nice thing is that any country can do this unilaterally. You don't need a lot of international cooperation. So the UK tomorrow could say, that's, that's, that's how we're going to tax Amazon or any company. We know their global profits that's published in their accounts. 
and we know their sales in the UK, and that's how, that's how we tax them. Let me now talk about tax evasion by wealthy individuals, which is also a big problem, especially when you look at the international data on, that's data on who owns US equities. Who are the foreign countries that own US equities, as recorded by US statisticians? If you look at this data today, the number one foreign investor in US equity markets it's not the UK, it's not Canada, it's not China, it's not Japan, it's the Cayman Islands. Okay, the Cayman Islands is the number one foreign investor in US equity markets. And more broadly, the share of all US listed equities which are owned by firms or individuals based in tax havens has followed you know, this dramatic uh, trend here was very low up to the late 1980s, and since 1990s it has increased to up to 10%. So today, about 10% of all US equities are owned by tax haven firms. And individuals, so what are these tax haven firms and individuals, what are they doing? Is it legal, is it illegal? There are many activities that, that take place in tax havens, in the Cayman Islands in particular, many of which are legal and, and legitimate, or at least legal, and some of which are you know, completely illegitimate and completely illegal. So the legal and legitimate activities where you have lots of investment funds, particular hedge funds, which are incorporated in the Cayman Islands. So the wealth managed by these hedge funds that will you know, show up here. Lots of you know, shadow banking activities, like special purpose vehicles, again in the Cayman Islands. Investment firms, you know, think Luxembourg, for instance, a tiny country of 500,000 inhabitants, is the number two country in the world for the incorporation of mutual funds, just after, just after the US. And so one other, wealth, you know, one other activity in tax havens is wealth management. It's private banks in Switzerland or in Singapore or you know, in Luxembourg, again, that, that cater to wealthy individuals to manage their wealth and invest their wealth in global equity markets, in bonds, and so on. And now that you know, particular tax haven activity, personal wealth management, can sometimes facilitate tax evasion by wealthy individuals. How does that work? Take the example of a businessman in, in Texas. You know, he has a carpet-making company in Texas in the US, and he wants to evade taxes, okay, totally illegally. So we're talking illegal tax evasion. He wants to evade taxes. So first step, he's going to create a shell company. A shell company, for instance, in the Cayman Islands, but you know, it's very easy to create shell companies in many OECD countries as well. Shell company has no identifiable beneficial owner. You create the company, the, uh, you know, nobody asks you about any document identifying who really owns the company. He creates a shell company, and then he buys from this shell company some uh, fictitious, you know, some non-existent management advice, for instance. So he's going to build a shell company for some services that have never happened, and in payment for these fake services, he's going to send money to the shell company. The shell company, before that, has opened a bank account in Switzerland. Okay, 60% of all Swiss bank accounts today belong to shell companies. 
So the shell company opens a bank account in Switzerland, so money flows from Texas to Switzerland as you no know, payment for these fake services. Everything you know, at first glance seems legitimate. You, know, you have billions of transactions uh, across countries, including to low-tax countries every year. But once the money has arrived in Switzerland, actually this Texan carpet maker can make investment from his Swiss account by UK equities or German bonds and so on, earn income on these investments, capital gains, interest, dividends, and he will not pay any tax unless he chooses to report this income to the IRS, the US tax authority, or unless the Swiss bank reports this income to the IRS. But if none of this happens, then you know this guy can totally evade Taxes and in the books of the Swiss bank, you know, there's going to be a lot of wealth that on paper belongs to a shell company, and really the shell company is, is anonymous. You know, think of this as uh, numbered accounts. 1970s, you know, up to 1970, numbered accounts were widely used, you know, and, and the document that was appearing was not the name and address of the account owner; it was just uh, you know, numbers, figures. Now, today, numbered, numbered accounts are prohibited by anti-money laundering regulations, and they've been replaced by accounts that belong to shell companies. So it's not a series of you know, numbers, it's just a series of, letter, of letters that appear on the bank documents. Okay? The bank, the bank accounts belong to shell company ABCD. What do we know <coughs> about the magnitude of offshore tax evasion of this kind? Now, the great thing is that the Swiss National Bank actually publishes monthly data on the wealth that's managed by Swiss banks that belongs to foreign uh, residents, non-Swiss residents. Latest data point is for October 2014 and says, well, there's $2.5 trillion of foreign wealth in Switzerland. So we know this uh, as a fact. We know that the majority of this belongs to uh, residents of rich countries, actually, residents of uh, Europe, a little bit to Americans, but a growing fraction uh, belongs to residents of developing countries, uh, Russia, Africa, Asia, and so on. What else do we know? So there are also similar statistics in Luxembourg. No, this is fine. And then you have these you know, inconsistency anomalies in the global data, uh, which are, you know, when you take all the financial assets of all countries, as recorded in the national accounts, and you take all the liabilities of countries, so you look at the world's balance sheet. You know, in principle, financial assets should balance liabilities. That should be exactly the same thing. There's a large gap. Financial assets, identifiable, recorded financial assets are substantially lower than recorded liabilities. And you know, this has many sources, but one key source is the, all the wealth that's held through Swiss accounts or through bank accounts in, in Luxembourg and so on, actually is well recorded on the liability side of the wealth balance sheet, but not on the asset side. Take a simple example. I'm now a, a UK resident. Let's imagine I have a Swiss account and through my Swiss account I invest in Microsoft equities. So I have US equities on my Swiss account. From the viewpoint of the US, that's a liability for the US. Okay, and US statisticians, they see, oh, there's 
you know, foreigners who own uh, U.S. equities. That's a liability for the U.S. U.K. statisticians, they would like to record an asset, but they can't because they don't know that I have this Swiss account. In Switzerland, people, you know, statisticians observe that, you know, there's this foreign person or this shell company that owns U.S. equities. That's none of Switzerland's business. That's neither an asset nor a liability for Switzerland, so nothing is recorded in Switzerland. So you see that more liabilities than assets are going to be recorded in the world's balance sheet. So using these anomalies, I have computed that about 8% of the world's financial wealth is held offshore uh, today. And if anything, that's a lower bound. Why? Because this only captures, this only captures financial wealth, equities, bonds, mutual fund shares, some derivatives, and bank deposits. But this disregards real estate, works of art, uh, and real assets in general in tax havens. That I can't capture with this method. What's the fraction of all this wealth that evades taxes? Or to put it differently, what's the fraction that people with, with Swiss accounts and so on choose to voluntarily self-declare to their home country tax authority. There's some you know, uncertainty on this. There's, again, some pretty good data from Switzerland suggesting that, at least in Switzerland, today, still 80% of the 2.5 trillion of offshore wealth in Switzerland evades taxes. So 8% of the world's financial wealth, that's the number here, that's a global average for all countries. Now at the global level, 8% of the world's financial wealth is held offshore, but there's a lot of heterogeneity across countries. So for the, for, for the US, there's going to be you know, about 4% of the financial wealth of the US that's owned by US residents through offshore financial institutions. For Europe, it's going to be 10. For developing countries, this is not going to be very big. You know, more than 20% for Latin America, 30% for Africa, maybe 50% for Russia and more for Gulf countries. So that's very quantitatively important for not only the rich world, but developing countries as well. And the tax revenue loss for governments, you know, I, I say more than 200 billion because these 190 billion figures here, again, only captures tax evasion on financial wealth but disregards real assets. The good news is that in recent months, really, a lot of progress has been made in curbing, that, in attempting to curb that particular form of tax evasion, you know, unreported wealth and income on offshore accounts. How is that possible? Well, by having offshore banks automatically sending information to foreign tax authorities. So now, almost all of the world's tax havens have agreed to send to the US tax authority, the IRS, the information that they have about the income and wealth of their clients who are US citizens. That's the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. They, most of tax havens have, you know, committed to do the same by 2017-2018 for other OECD countries. So maybe by the end of this decade, there will be an automatic exchange of bank information at the global level. Now, that's a great, and that's, that's great, and that's a huge step forward, but still that, that there are three obstacles here. One obstacle is that 
you cannot simply politely ask offshore bankers, many of, 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 of them are, 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 are very honest people and will abide by the law, but some of them have become very rich by facilitating tax evasion. So you cannot ask the very same people who've been facilitating tax evasion all of a sudden to do the opposite and to play the tax man's job. You know, that the incentives here, there's an incentive problem. You need to put incentives for, you know, having actually offshore bankers sending the right information. Otherwise, what's the information that they're going to send? They're going to say, well, we don't have UK customers, you know, we don't have US customers. No, really, we don't have any customers. So we are not sending any information. The best way to deal with this issue is to have well-defined sanctions for uh, non-compliance. If there's no specific penalty attached to either not participating to this system of automatic exchange of tax information or to failing to provide the right information, if there's no sanction, you know, the incentive for uh, uh, offshore tax havens to continue engaging in illicit tax evasion will remain strong and tax evasion will continue. But the good news is that, yes, if you have clearly defined sanctions, then, you know, it will become unprofitable for tax havens to actually encourage tax evasion, and yes, tax evasion, at least this type of tax evasion, could uh, uh, disappear or could, could, could diminish a lot, and yes, that would make it possible to actually have a global wealth tax. That's the type of things, you know, if you can't really hide your wealth anywhere, if there's an automatic exchange of tax information at the global level, yes, you can start thinking in practical terms about global wealth uh, taxation. Now, as I was saying, and I will conclude with this, there's, uh, in the next slide, there's one obstacle which is, okay, securing the compliance from offshore bankers. Two other obstacles is what I'm calling the, in, the, the opacity of international financial record keeping, which is in the books of these you know, banks, there's 60% or more of the wealth that belongs to shell companies with no clearly identifiable owners. So how do you deal with this issue that there's a lot of wealth that really belongs to nobody. And with this other issue that, you know, offshore bankers may not really send the right information. In top of the automatic exchange of tax information, I think what we need today is a world financial registry. A world financial registry would make it possible to really curb tax evasion and to make big progress in the measurement of financial wealth. What is it and why do we need it? Do we need it? And that's the, that's the conclusion. What is it? We've, we have land registries, real estate registries in all countries and sometimes for a very, very long time. For centuries in the UK, there's been a land registry that records who owns the real wealth, the land, the real estate in the country. As we say in the US, you can you know, connect on you know, the website of the US municipality and type in any address in New York and you can know who actually owns this building. You can, can type in any name and you can know if any particular person owns anything anywhere in New York. You know, that's public information and that's been there for a very long time. But when these real registries were created, for instance in 1791 in France, centuries ago, financial wealth was very small land, real estate, accounted for the bulk of wealth. So these registries, they did capture almost all of people's wealth. 
Today, they only capture, you know, 40, 50, depending on, on the country, 50% of people's wealth. The rest is financial wealth. So we need to do the same thing as we do for real assets, but now for equities, bonds, mutual fund shares, derivatives. What's the goal? The goal is, first of all, just to be able to better measure wealth. So it's fine to have reports by uh, private banks, by uh, non-profit uh, organizations, you know, by, by researchers on what we think are the trends in the distribution of wealth, it would be much better if actually this kind of information was directly provided by government statistical agencies. Okay? If, if you know, the UK, the Office for National Statistics could say the top 0.1% wealth, wealth share in the UK, that's X. That's exactly the type of tool that you need to uh, obtain this information. And the states go way beyond tax evasion, so this would help a lot curb tax evasion, but this would help a lot better monitor financial stability. For instance, when you have a huge gap between assets and liabilities, it's just very hard to know who, know who owns what and to, to monitor financial stability. And that's the conclusion. Is it possible? Yes, because financial registries already exist today, but they are partial, fragmentary, and they are managed by private financial institutions like Euroclear in Europe, or Clearstream in Luxembourg, or the Depository Trust Corporation in the US. So what we simply need is to merge these registries to create a public financial registry, and ideally at the world level. Thank you very much. So now there's uh, time for some uh, Q&A. So please wait till one of the stewards hands you the microphone so everybody can uh, you know, listen to your question. There's a question over there. Uh, I would like to make you a question. I'm Italian, uh, don't, uh, so the problem of tax avoidance is quite huge in Italy. But recently, in the last three, four years, happened that many Italian individuals that they do business, they move their, their business in, uh, in England, even if 80% of the business is done outside UK. So that's basically the point that you touch when you talk about shifting uh, profit. And so basically, even if they, they produce a business in Italy or in Spain, other country, at the end of the day, they, they decide to move to UK because the taxation is lower. So my point is that why no one understand this kind of uh, move? And uh, that at the end of the day, is a, these people, they don't stay in UK. They only open a company here, but they stay in Greece, Italy, or Spain. Maybe we collect like a couple of questions and then one there. Right. I have a question regarding your proposal to split up profits according to sales in different countries. So, I mean, the first point is I don't think taxes are just for redistributory purposes but also partly at least to pay for government services, roads, things like that, infrastructure. 
Now, what if a company exports all of its products to a different country, which is often the case in, in this integrated industry, industries we see today? Now, if you then split up profits according to sales, the country where the exporter produces and uses infrastructure and government services does not actually get any taxes. Now, I don't think this is particularly fair. And the second point, or the second question, regards uh, the incentives that countries face. So even if we, for personal income taxation, institute this system where you know, we have this, this financial registry, it is still the case that the largest wealth holders are also physically most mobile. And it's probably also the case that countries still face an incentive to lower tax rates and to get this tax base into their countries. So even if we register those, what we might see is a reduction in illicit tax evasion, but there might probably be an increase or potentially be an increase in sort of legal tax evasion in the sense that countries will adapt their um, legal systems. Thank you. Um, I also have two questions. The first question is uh, also regarding the split up of um, profits or taxes. So um, the European Union tried to implement a, like a system like that, I think, some years ago, and it failed also due to reasons which the colleague already mentioned. And you said, uh, you gave an example, for example, you said, okay, in the UK we know the worldwide profit, so we could say sales are X and like to export. But is the problem in the first place not that we, at the moment, we don't know what is, for example, Amazon. We don't know, like, how many sales they, for example, have in Germany. They, they, they kind of didn't reveal it for a long time. So a lot of people say in the first place we should kind of implement... Um, my second question is uh, concerning the graph you showed, I think, was the second or third slide. Um, where you could see that in the 70s there was like a, like a huge increase in the um, wealth to 0.1% in the U.S. held. Um, and my question is, this, this huge increase in the, in the 70s, might it be to the end of the Bretton Woods system? Do you have like any reasoning why there's like this sharp increase? Because, for example, some researchers like James Tobin, I think he kind of proposed in that direction and said that due to like the, the um, globalized um, exchange rate markets, this, this, this spread happened. Thank you. Okay, so, so let, me, let me try to, to answer the, the, starting with the last question. So, so in 1970s, what, what, what happens to, to the distribution of wealth in the US is that the top 0.1% wealth share falls you know, in the 1970s, that's the, the historical minimum is actually in the late 1970s. And I think you're right that this is totally linked to you no know, turmoil on you know, global markets, uh, uh, equity, bond, currency markets, which in turn you know, have probably something to do with you know, the move from fixed exchange rate to, to floating exchange rate. So at least that's one possibility. Well, there are many other things that, that happen, you know, oil, oil shocks and, and many, many other things, but it's clear that in any case, 1970s, it's a very bad decade for people with a lot of financial wealth. Just the price of financial assets falls a lot for a variety of, uh, of reasons. 
questions about, okay, is it really such a great idea to allocate global profits based on sales? I, I really think it is a, a, a good idea. Why? You should, it's true that, you know, sales are not really correlated to uh, the location of profits. So you can have a firm, okay, it employs many people in, uh, in the UK, has its factories in the UK, it's only selling to China. So with my, with my system, you know, the, the taxing rights in some sense would be allocated to China and not to the UK. And you may say, well, that's, you know, that's crazy and that's really a bad idea. I don't think so for the following reason. You should think of the corporate tax as essentially it's a prepayment for the personal income tax. It is eventually, you know, corporations, they don't pay taxes. Real people pay taxes. For a very long time, the way that the corporate tax worked, including in the UK, is that it was integrated with the personal income tax, which is that some taxes are withheld at the corporate level, and then when corporations distribute dividends to shareholders, shareholders receive a credit for all the taxes that have previously been withheld at the corporate level. And conceptually, that's the right way to think about corporate taxation, which is we want to tax shareholders immediately, whether they receive dividends or not. We want to tax them immediately at the corporate level, and then when they receive dividends, well, we are not going to tax them twice. No, we are going to give them a credit. And so we don't care uh, exactly which country levies the corporate tax. Now, what matters is that all corporations pay taxes, whether they are big or small, whether they are in the manufacturing sector or in the IT sector, at pretty high rates. And then, you know, that's how we tax shareholders immediately when economic profits accrue to shareholders. So that's, and, and the system I'm describing is doing this very well. You know, it ensures that all corporations, big or small, IT or manufacturing, are going to pay a lot of taxes. That's what matters. Um, the mobility of high-income individuals, you know, that's a potential... Yes, you know, the, the, the potential threat to the World Financial Registry, it's not, a, it's not a threat, but the potential response is, yes, okay, if people cannot evade taxes anymore illegally, then they're going just to move their residence to... Uh, the Bahamas or you know, Cayman Islands or two countries with zero personal income tax rates. Is that a big threat? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. What's the evidence on the, the mobility of very high income individuals? It's not huge, you know, and people are not really willing to, 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 to move to, to Bermuda to not pay taxes. You know, there are data in the U.S., quarterly data, on the number of people renouncing U.S. citizenship, and it's very small and it's uh, maybe two or 3,000 Americans every year renounce U.S. citizenship, but 400,000, 500,000 actually acquire U.S. citizenship. So it's not, you know, it, these are very small uh, flows. So I don't think that's a big uh, problem right now, and I don't see this as becoming a very big problem in the, in the near future. And so for the question on what, what, what happens in Italy, yes, you know, people move their businesses all across England. And, you know, I think, again, the, the nice, uh, a nice feature of the plan I was describing is that that removes any incentive for actually moving your headquarters or your workforce or your factories all over the world. Wherever your 
factories, etc., are located, you are actually going to pay the same profit, the same taxes, right? Because all countries are going to start from your global consolidated profit that do not depend where is your where your headquarter is, and you know, apportion this based on sales. So that's another nice feature of this plan. It removes any incentive for artificial profit shifting and also any incentive for tax competition for real factors of uh, production. Another round. Is, is that a microphone? Yeah. Uh, when you refer to higher progressive income tax rates, what would you say the highest possible rates should be for income tax? There was another question. Um, my question is, how would you implement your plan with um, industries that don't necessarily sell a physical product, like, for example, Google? My question is about the consolidated corporation tax base. I think, sorry, European Union been trying to do that for decades, for more than a decade, but they not succeed yet. Um, how, how, how could you persuade, persuade the country to do that? Because basically every nation, every tax authority will calculate will the country gain or loss from that tax base. Then they will decide whether they will join to the, the tax rates or not. And obviously, some country will gain from that policy, some will lose. So how, you, how can you implicate, implicate that policy? Thank you. Yes, that's a very good and very important question. And I think the, the, the short answer is by you know, using you know, threats and uh, you know, clearly defined penalties for countries that do not want to cooperate and uh, that w continue to, you know, want to still be able to facilitate uh, a widespread uh, tax avoidance. So, in, in, in particular, I think if we had a serious, you know, European Commission president, that's what he would have done, you know, in the aftermath of, you know, the, the LuxLeaks scandal that indeed there is this uh, long-standing European plan for doing, you know, what, what I was describing, you know, taxing consolidated profits, which is known as the, you know, CCCTB, you know, the Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base. You know, European countries have been discussing this for decades. Nothing happens. Oh, by the way, this already exists in the U.S. This, this, this is how the U.S., taxes companies for state corporate, for the state corporate tax. You, know, you think of a U.S. company that has activities in New Jersey, in California, in Texas. All these states, you know, maybe not Texas, but they have a corporate income tax. Uh, the way that the profits of this U.S. firm are allocated to New Jersey or California, it's exactly the, the system that I'm describing. You know, it's starting from the consolidated U.S. profits of the firm and looking at the fraction of sales made in California, the fraction of sales made in uh, New Jersey. So 
So that has been in place. That works very well in the U.S. That, that, that's been there for decades. The European Commission and European countries have been discussing this for a very long time. The, the simplest way to move forward is to say, well, who are the countries who refuse to move forward? Why do they refuse? You know, there's just no good reason. They're just stealing, basically, the tax revenue of, you know, their neighboring European countries. This works in the U.S. If you don't want to do this, you know, countries that feel they are, they are, you know, their tax revenue are being stolen will, you know, impose well-defined uh, economic sanctions. That's the best way, I think, to make progress. That's how the U.S., for instance, has been able to secure the cooperation of uh, most tax havens for the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which is there's a 30% tax withheld by the U.S. on any payments made to a foreign bank that refuses to send information to the, to the IRS. Okay. And that has been extremely powerful in securing uh, cooperation. Um, so, okay, what w problem is, do we, do we really know where, where the sales are made? You know, how do we know, you know, what, who Google makes its, uh, where Google makes its sales? I think we do actually know this pretty well, in particular in Europe, because this is well measured for the VAT, you know, so we have good systems to record the, f the location of uh, final sales. Who are the people who consume, who purchase Google ads, for instance, who buy books on Amazon? This is not you know, totally perfect, but actually there is already an infrastructure for the VAT to determine this pretty precisely. And let me okay, try to answer this question of what's the highest possible income tax rate? Uh, the, the highest possible income, possible it's 100%, but the highest what the optimal income tax rate, you know, there's a vast economic literature on optimal taxation that tries to address this question. And that says, well, it's, it's going to depend basically on, on two things. This is going to depend on inequality. So everything else equal. More inequality means the higher the optimal income tax rate, the top marginal income tax rate. And this is going to depend on the elasticity of taxable income with respect to, to the net of to, to the tax rate, let's say. So this is going to depend on the extent to which people work less or put less effort uh, in, in their work or, or even leave the labor force in response to an increase in the tax rate. Now, there have been tons of studies trying to estimate this elasticity. When you take the best estimates you find that you know, in the long run, the elasticity of labor supply, what I just described, is, is not extremely high. When you combine this with what we know about the distribution of income inequality in the UK and the US, you get optimal income tax rates, which are typically in the 70-80% range. Okay? That's the tax rate that's going to maximize tax revenue. That is, any tax rate above 80% would be self-defeating for the government. The government would lose revenue, but 80%, that's the top of the Laffer curve. You maximize tax revenue. 80% includes all taxes on income. So that's not only the, if you want to you know, make this concrete, it's not only the personal income tax rate in the UK. You, you need to, ha to add you know, social security taxes or national you know, insurance contributions in the UK. You combine all of this, and the optimal you know, tax rate is probably around 80% in the UK today. Next round. 
Um, my question is that even if you manage to collect the correct amount of taxes from corporations and companies, how do you know that national governments will actually use the revenue generated from these taxes to address inequality, not just spending on general government things? I think there was another question on the balcony too. Um, you, you rejected as a response to corporate profit shifting um, a potential uh, alternative solution which would be to abolish corporation tax altogether and, and presumably to levy um, other taxes in its place. And the reason you gave for um, rejecting that approach was because you need some at least approximate equivalents of income tax and corporation tax or some tax on corporations because otherwise individuals will incorporate in order to avoid um, income tax. And of course, one, one way you might alleviate that problem would be then just to, t to tax the individual when they withdraw um, money from the company, so when they take dividends. Later on in, in your answer to an earlier question, you said that the problem with that was something along the lines of it would be better to tax the corporate profit when it arises rather than to wait for people to, for individuals to take dividends from the company. And I just wondered wh why you thought um, it was preferable to, to tax immediately rather than to wait. Thank you very much for a very insightful lecture. My name is Toshi from Westminster University. I'm a student there. And my question is about the sanction for the country or the financial institution not complying with such bilateral or multilateral agreement. I was wondering if, any, if there's any an effective sanction at the moment or is any initiative to have a universal sanction for such activities. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think the main example is the one I mentioned on the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act in the U.S., which is really the U.S. saying any bank abroad, any financial institution that refuses to automatically send us information, everything they know about the income and the wealth of their U.S. citizens' uh, customers, any such institution will be subject to a 30% tax withheld at source by U.S. financial institutions. So that's, and given the huge size of the U.S. in world financial markets and so on, that's you know, a, a, a major threat. And you, know, you, you look at what happened, this, this, this has worked very well. So I, in the sense that this, is, this does not have to be even applied. You know, it's just a threat that's enough to make progress, you know, for a very long time you had zero exchange of bank information between tax havens and foreign countries. Nothing whatsoever. And now, you know, starting right now, there is 
a lot of information all of a sudden that's being sent to the U.S. tax authority and maybe by the end of, the, of this decade to HMRC or, you know, tax authorities in Europe and in maybe hopefully in developing countries. So I think this, 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 this is a pretty striking uh, example. Uh, why is it preferable to tax income when it is realized rather than waiting that for, for shareholders to withdraw income from their company? It's very simple, you know. Think, imagine you're a billionaire. You have 10 billion uh, pounds of wealth. Uh, that, that wealth generates dividends, okay? And the dividends are going to be paid not directly to you. They're going to be paid to an intermediate holding company, okay? So the intermediate holding company is going to receive, you know, let's say 500 million pounds every year in income. You don't need 500 million pounds to enjoy a good life, you know, you only need maybe a few million pounds. So you're going to only withdraw one or two million pounds from this intermediate wealth holding company. The bottom line is that you're going to pay taxes on only this one or two million despite the fact that your true economic income is 500 million pounds, okay? And this can go on forever, okay? So that's the key reason why you want to tax the 500 million pounds at the corporate level. Uh, and then what will governments do with all the money that they're going to raise with extra taxes on the rich? Well, I think the best thing to do would be to actually cut taxes for... Uh, the rest of the, the rest of the population, you know, the middle class or low-income families. You know, the goal is not to to increase tax revenue in at least not in Europe where they are pretty high. Maybe in the U.S. yes, maybe, but in most European countries or like France where I come from, you know, that's certainly not the goal. You know, it's just you raise more taxes at the top end of the distribution. You can cut taxes for the middle class, which then makes it easier for the middle class to, you know, enjoy a higher standard of living, save, build wealth, and so on. Any final question left? There's one over there, in the middle, and one in the back, and then... I'll just go ahead. Hello? Sorry. Um, so tonight you've talked about some of the um, potential technical solutions to a lot of these problems. I wanted to ask you more about the process that's needed to bring about change. Um, excuse me. So, for example, me, I'm Scandinavian, so I'm brought up with a certain cultural perspective on taxation, which might be very different to some of the American outrageous um, sort of reactions to President Obama's proposal of increasing tax rates on the wealthiest. Um, so with this sort of divergence, what can you say about the, rather than specifically economic, but more cultural and almost psychological attitudes that constrain any progress within yeah, this area of taxation? Um, hi there. Um, obviously, you've got the um, 2015 election coming up. Um, but I'd like to say that obviously you know that Labour, they're proposing a mansion tax um, on properties more than 2 million. 
Um, and that's obviously going to affect the economy a lot because that's applying to 0.5% of homes in the UK. Um, and obviously what they're trying to do is they're trying to contribute to the UK. They're trying to you know, spread that you know, wealth towards the low-income um, people. Um, and obviously that could fund for you know, the NHS, other sectors of the economy. It could fund for you know, uh, the army. Um, but what I'd like to say is, do you think that the mansion tax is the correct policy for long-term inequality changes um, instead of just short-term? Last question, I think, was, yeah, right there. So um, you talked mostly about leakage of tax revenue from uh, high-tax countries to these tax havens um, and, and special structures. But what about the incentives that that creates for higher investment in both the high both the, the tax havens and also the neighboring high-tax countries? Does it not increase the amount of financial competition, increase the amount of debt financing that multinationals use in uh, both high-tax and, and lower-tax places? Um, uh, um, let, let me say that you know, generally speaking, what, you know, taxes affect, you know, of course, the behavior of people and, and firms, and uh, we, we know a little bit about this. We don't know as much as we would like to know. Do they affect, you know, long-run investment decisions a lot? In a very broad sense, not really. You know, if you take, for instance, you know, if, you, if you think about you know, the UK or France over centuries starts, you know, in the early you know, 19th century, and you look, you know, in the 19th century there was no tax, basically. At least no tax on corporation, no tax on capital, very little, very, very little taxation of capital. And the saving rate or the investment rate was about 10% of national income. Okay. And, and today, you know, we have all forms of taxes and corporations at the personal level, on capital gains, on estates. And, you know, the private saving and investment rate is still about 10%. And, you know, it's very stable in the long run. So this is in broad sense to say that, you know, it, it, it does not seem like taxes in the long run have a huge effect on at least aggregate investment or aggregate saving. You know, people save for tons of reasons that vary across countries and over time, but it seems that it's pretty, in the end, the flow of savings seems pretty stable compared to GDP. Now, of course, it, it does not mean that it's not going to affect the way that people save or, you know, the use of debt versus equity. That, that's, that's totally true. But in some sense, what we care about is really the total flow of investment. You know, we want our economies to invest a little bit. That's, that's good, you know. And, and it seems that here taxes do not play such a big role. Now, about the mentioned tax, um, well, in the long run, I don't think that it's, you know, I, think, I don't think that's the, that's the best way to actually address rising inequality in the UK. You know, I think people over 
emphasize property, the usefulness of property taxes. Property taxes are very old taxes, have been existing for centuries. And the fact is that the higher up you move in the wealth distribution, the higher the share of financial assets, and the lower the fraction of your wealth that actually takes the form of housing or real assets. So you must think of property taxes or real estate taxes as, as not, you know, taxes on the very wealthy. These are taxes, you know, on the wealthy middle class or sometimes on, you know, pretty wealthy people, but certainly not on the wealthiest people. Wealthiest people, 90% or more of their wealth is financial wealth and in particular equity wealth. So if you are really concerned about using taxes on wealth, like property taxes, to deal with inequality, rising inequality, what's much better than a mansion tax or any change to the property tax is a tax on total net wealth. Total wealth, not only housing, but housing plus financial assets, net of debt. That's a much more powerful way to actually address rising inequality in the long run. And so what about the cultural attitudes that prevent changes? I'm not so convinced that this is a major obstacle, at least in the very long run, in the sense that cultural attitudes toward taxes, they do change a lot. The US today, you may think, okay, that's the country, okay, they don't want to raise taxes, there is all this opposition, you know, to even tiny increases in taxes to fund uh, the Affordable Care Act and so, but actually the US, you know, go back to 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, the US invented the, the, the Roosevelt-like top tax rates, you no know, tax rates of 90% or more on incomes above the equivalent of $1 million today. That was in place in the US for half of the 20th century and very, very high tax rates on estates, on top estates as well. So these things, I think, they change. They change depending to a large extent, to, depending on a, to a large extent on how the distribution of income and wealth changes. So in very, no, it's, it's very much as a response to rising inequality that the U.S. introduced these very high tax rates. And so it's, not, it's, it's, it's likely, or at least not impossible, that the same will happen at some point in the 21st century when you have extreme levels of wealth concentration. You know, cultural attitudes uh, change and, and respond to this. And uh, so I'm, I'm pretty you know, optimistic in that, in that regard. All right. So to conclude, I'd like to thank you all for coming and ask you to join me in thanking our speaker, Gabriel Zuckman, one more time.